Welcome to The Streets Are Planning. This is your host, Jay Ruffin, and I am glad to be with you today. I have a wonderful guest uh, on the show today, Nina Edamudia from, uh, she's out in Chicago, making things happen right now, a Detroit native, but I'm going to give her the opportunity hey. to introduce herself for the moment. So, you know, because you got one of the East Side's finest out here trying to make okay. things happen, you know what I mean? So listen, um, listen, we, we have, as you know, uh, guests and, and folks who are listening to the show we always start off with our "Where You're From" segment, um, and so we're gonna we're gonna give Nina uh, the opportunity to represent where she's from, and then we'll get into her her career, how she started, and uh, we're gonna have a conversation on on equity and housing and, and home ownership today too. So uh, glad you tuned in. But Nina, tell the folks hey. where you're from. Hey, hey, I'm happy to be here. Well, you know, I'm from the you know D Town's finest out here. We we East know. We, we see you. <laughs> East side all day, every day. Okay, seven mile, better mile. Uh, you know, I'm from all over the east side. Uh, grew up on um, seven and Van Dyke. Uh, my mom lives on six and mounds to this day. She, you know, she's owned that house since I was like eight years old. Um, but east side to the day I die. I don't know much about the west side. I'm not gonna lie. Um, <laughs> It's all it's all good. The West Side is cool too, but we we gonna let we gonna let y'all live today. They got got houses and stuff over there, and resources and grocery stores. I don't know nothing about that. Okay, (laughs) I grew up on the East Side. I did go to school um, in the suburbs, though. Um, As most people, well, most people I would say from Detroit either went to like a Cass, a Renaissance, a King, or they outsourced their education, and I was one of those people. Yeah. You know, you kind of use somebody else's address in order to, to get a better education. Uh, so I actually went to Harper Woods High School, which is a east side suburb. And I was in that school system, shoot, since from, I started there in like third grade to the day I graduated. Uh, we bused, we, we took the public bus, the eight mile bus. We used to walk from my auntie house from seven mile up, uh, up to eight mile, take the eight mile bus all the way to East Land Mall every day, rain, sleet, snow. Love. Okay, so to get, to get yeah. that high quality education, man. Oh yes, wow. Absolutely. Wow, wow. Yo, so the so the East Side man is is listen. Um, you're one of the you're one of the top folks that when I think about the east side of Detroit and, and folks who are active involved in built environment space, like mm-hmm. your name comes to mind immediately. Like somebody <laughs> that I that I, I've had uh you know admiration for for some time because of how you've you've gone about your career and your focus on equity and making sure that you're lifting up. Uh, black and brown folks, uh, you know, wherever you are. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're so, so grateful to have you on the show today. And, um, you know, the, one of the things that, you know, as, as I was researching in, in, in your career, um, I, I was really curious, like I am with a lot of folks of like, how did you get interested in cities and, and the built environment and urban planning? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I feel like I've listened to a lot of, of your episodes of, you know, of this show. I'm a fan, right? I'm organically a fan. I and, I, and I feel like almost every person says, I kind of fell into it. You know, like, I, it kind of fell into me. But the funny thing is, as an adult, looking back, I actually 
care started to care about the built environment as I said when I was taking that when I was walking from seven mile to eight mile and then taking that that bus um all the way to the suburbs every single day from from like fourth grade on and taking that bus every single day and seeing exactly how the landscape was was changing and it never really occurred to me until I started to kind of uh think through like, why did I get interested in planning? Like, why did I, why, why am I so passionate about the built environment? And it was really because I realized my built environment, the lack of parks that I had, or the lack of safety that I felt, um, or the lack of just mere access to education, like uh, education that me and my brothers and sisters could actually go to in our surrounding neighborhood just wasn't there, right? And so being able to recognize that and then realize that at an early age, I knew what urban planning was. I just didn't know how to articulate it, right? I just didn't know how to articulate the fact that there was no mainstream grocery stores in my neighborhood, right? We went to the neighborhood grocery stores that, um, that had rotten meat, no fresh vegetables. And then when I became an adult, I was like, oh, life doesn't have to be like this. There are neighborhoods who have fresh, fresh grocers, they get the best meat. They, you know, they have access to not just one type of milk, right? Not just the whole milk, but they got 2%. They got almond. They got almond vanilla unsweetened. You could get cashew. almond vanilla sweet. <laughs> you could get cashew. You know, like you just piecing that together, um, I think really shaped my mind into an advocacy mindset at a young age before I even knew. Um, also early on when I was 10 years old, I saw my mother get beat by two officers and hauled away to prison for, for four years. And then she was on probation for another two. So when I lived with my aunt, it was because, you know, my mother was in prison and, and instead of going into foster care, we went into kinship care, which was, which means that, you know, a relative takes care of you while your while your parent is in prison. So I also think knowing that the environment that we were in, regardless of how much my mother wanted us to succeed. Now, mind you, my mother's a college graduate. She went to law school. She didn't finish, but she went, because I remember sleeping in her classes when I was three years old. But still, we were in an environment in which it caused her to go to prison and, and to be a victim of police brutality. Now, whether you think what she did, I mean, you know, I won't get into specifics of whether what she did was right or wrong, right? Because that's that's not necessarily the point is that we were in an environment that caused those things to happen, merely just because of the zip code or the city that I was born into. Um, and so I think that that really started my passion for wanting to shape the built environment so that other little Ninas didn't have to go through what I went through. That's, that's, that's really powerful. And I, I think you know, one of the things that, as you mentioned, you know, folks do often say they, they kind of just fell into it. Um, but what you've highlighted is something that I've, I've long tried to, to advocate for in this urban planning space, which is everyone's experience is, is valid. You're already an mm -hmm. urban planner, especially when you grow right. up in environments like you and I grew up in. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a situation where you're thinking about how do I navigate, you know, my neighborhood to avoid police interaction and yep. avoid like some of the D-boys or avoid like, you know, some a fight or all of these issues or whatever the case might be. And then yep. also securing, you know, the resources that you need just to survive is how yes. do you do that? And so, um, you know, when you bring that type of experience into this field, it, it definitely creates a different view and perspective of how urban planning 
is was used and how it should be used moving forward, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think once I started my formal education, I went to the University of Michigan for undergrad. Um, go blue. You already know. Go blue. Um, <laughs> and as soon as I went into, as soon as I got up to campus, I'm like, I'm, I'm studying African-American studies. I don't care what anybody say. I don't care if I don't get a job. I wanted to, because I went to a predominantly white school, I was always the token or the only one or the person who had to tell people the difference that is that is more than MLK and, and uh, Malcolm X. I promise there's more leaders out there that we could be talking about in class. Like I was literally that student um, who was always pushing back. So when I got to Michigan, I decided I was going to study African-American studies as my degree. And then I ended up also picking up women's studies as like a secondary um, companion degree. So I, so my bachelor's is in African-American studies and women's studies. And then one of my advisors from my African-American studies track one day, I was in her office and she was like, oh, Michigan's planning school, which you went to, right, for grad school? Yes. They were yeah. recruiting, they were recruiting um, for more diverse applicants, which I'm sure they're still doing to this day. <laughs> and so she was like, you know, they reached out, they're looking for my diverse applicants. Would this is, some, is this something you'd be interested in? And I was literally like, I don't know what urban planning is. Like, what, what is that? And so we literally Googled it in her office. Her name is Kathy Weather. She still works there. She's also my soror. She also wrote my Delta letter to give me. Oh, man. So shout, out, shout out to Miss Weather. Shout out to Miss Weather. So she holds a special place in my heart. Um, and we Googled it. And the rest is history. I was like, I guess I'm going to grad school for planning. Um, and then that next, I want to say that was my junior year. And so, yeah, that next year, I was just applying to schools. Um, and ended up deciding to go to LA to go to University of Southern California because um, Michigan wasn't really trying to give me no money. And I was like, hey. okay, well, LA is warm. You know, they gave me a scholarship. Right. They flew me out in the middle of winter and it was 80 degrees. So I was like, take me, please. <laughs> <laughs> please, I'm coming out that way. No, listen, I, yes. and that's and that's a critical that's a critical key. Is like, you, you know, there are a lot of universities across this country that have resources. Michigan has mm -hmm. resources, but they haven't mm -hmm. exactly been ex putting it in pots that they should, right? Oh, and, absolutely. And so when it comes to equity and diversity and inclusion and things like that, now they're doing a better job now. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they're attempting to. And so yeah. I, I think that's a discussion that you and I, we, 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 can, have we, that. Can, we can push. <laughs> we can have that and we can push on that conversation because it's, yeah. it's real, not just at Michigan, but other universities yeah. across so the country. Many. It's, it's, so it's many. So many. It's, 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 time. Time. it's time. And even the undergraduate experience for Black students, I, I think for at the sure. time we may have been 4% of the whole population. And mind you, Michigan has like 44,000 students just on the Ann Arbor or like maybe Ann Arbor campus and um, Flint's campus com yeah. combined. combined uh, yeah. But yeah, but but you know, like very minute numbers for its, its African-American students. Um, yeah. And so I think also my undergrad experience one made me want to venture out and go go somewhere different and and get a different um view of the world and so like going to LA I, I will say was one of the, the best decision of my life um to go to LA to learn planning in California to get a different view um so that I can apply what I knew from my home but also apply, say you know because you know University of Southern California is in the middle of South Central a lot of people don't know that it's in the middle of the hood, but they it's see a white the palm bubble. trees and forget. They see right, the palm trees and forget. But it's an it's an it's literally a white privilege bubble in the middle of South Central, and so I was like, oh, you know, I thought that lady trail with palm trees, like I'm good, like I'll be good over there. But it really forced me um, to 
really learn active listening and empathy because yes, as black folks, we have similar experiences, but also your experience in your city is so unique that I, as a black woman from Detroit cannot take it for granted or be jaded by the fact that I think I know certain things. I still have to be open to your experience as a black person in South LA, right? And then find the common thread um, to make a connection. But I can't go into that environment like Christopher Columbus, which I think a lot of my white colleagues do, right? Because they're not from these neighborhoods and they would assume, oh, girl, you're from Detroit, right? You're good. And I'm like, no, I've had, I've had awkward moments with other black folks in communities that I've wanted to help because I wasn't actively listening. And so that really taught me to be a better planner. And I think it really has set me apart from my, uh, my colleagues. Yo, and, and I think that's an important thing that I want to just reiterate that point. Um, you know, I've had a number of discussions with, with, with black and brown planners and, and oftentimes by their organizations, they're sent in the, in the situations that they're not familiar with themselves just because mm -hmm. we're, we're black or we're brown, you know, Latino, whatever, yep. does not mean that our experience links up with whatever neighborhood, with right. whatever black experience is there. It's and so not the same. It's, it's not the same. And so I just, I, I want to make sure that I, that we put a, a, a point on that for the listeners is that you, you, no matter what, you still got to be an active listener, yep. no matter what, still go in and show that deference and respect to those folks who are within that city or that community and neighborhood that you're working in. And Absolutely. and that's how you build trust. You don't build it from, I'm the expert. Exactly. I'm, I'm, now I'm not just, I'm an expert, but I'm a, I'm a black expert coming right. in and talk to you, oh, right? Like that, that's no, that's no better. <laughs> that's no better at all. Um, no, and no, so I feel no like that's something, that's almost something you can't even teach. That's something innate um, that you just have to, you have to have enough empathy to listen and again, give deference to people's experiences. Absolutely, absolutely. So you, so you made your way out to LA, you loved your mm -hmm. experience out there. Um, you, and you worked for, the, for, the, for Los Angeles uh, City for, for a while in the planning department. And, uh, and then you transitioned into uh, Chicago. Yes. You came out here to the, came back out here to the yeah, Midwest. Yeah, I came so, back to the Midwest. Yeah, I mean, after working, you know, I, I started my grad, so I went straight from undergrad to grad school. So I graduated from Michigan in 2012, went straight to LA, graduated from USC in 2014, mm -hmm. um, hated USC. I, I was ready to come back home. I was, you know, because Detroit, are, although I went to school in the suburbs, Detroit is a black city, okay? Oh, and yeah. so I was not used, <laughs> even <laughs> with my experience at Michigan, being about around so much white privilege, it was sickening. And I would be in these classes with these white folks talking about planning and nobody's talking about the elephant in the room. Nobody's talking about, at that time, especially like 2012, 2000, between 2012, 2014, nobody was really talking about equity, diversity or inclusion like that. Not how we are now. Um, even now it's performative, but then it wasn't even performative. It just didn't exist, right? So I was the girl from Detroit in the class saying every five seconds, well, I'm from Detroit and that's not, not how the world works, right? Um, and so that kind of led me to go to the administration. And I was like, look, I literally went into the administration's office and I said, y'all are not doing enough for South LA. Y'all need to like have some kids on campus, teach them about planning. This is like the first three, four months that I'm there. And they're like, okay, Nina, like we'll pay for it. You know, if you, if you want to do it, we'll do it. And I was like, oh shoot, like I'm actually going to have to come up with this program. Came up with this program called Planning for College. 
brought 100 kids to the campus each year. It actually went on past when I graduated. Um, it grew. It won awards. It won me my first APA award, American Planning Association award. For those of you who don't know, but I'm sure if you listen to the podcast, you know who they are. Um, and it ended up, the notoriety from that program ended up opening lots of doors for me. Um, it, it got me recruited to be an intern for the city of Los Angeles. So that's how I even got into the city of Los Angeles. I had no desire to work for the man. Like when I tell you, I didn't think I was going to work for government. I <laughs> you laughing, but I never wanted to work for government, but when they reached out and they were like, Nina, you know, we see the articles being written about you. We want to do a youth program out of the city of Los Angeles will you help us? So that's how I started. It ended up working there um, my my second year of grad school and then ended up getting a full-time job um, after that and worked there for five years, for five years. And then I decided that I wanted to come back to the Midwest. I've always wanted to work for different major cities. Um, I, I plan on being HUD secretary one day, like watch out for me, you know. Speaking <laughs> Nina, into existence. HUD, yes, HUD secretary, let's see, uh, 2040. Um, and so I've always seen myself being able to like go to different major cities, Los Angeles, second major city, Chicago, third largest city. And I say big cities because I think that there is value in having so many different neighborhoods that have needs, but also they all need different, they all need something different, right? We have like the South side and the West side of Chicago that has so many different neighborhoods just in those two geographies and they all need something different, right? Same thing in Detroit. You have the East side and the West side of Detroit. You got Southwest Detroit. All this, all have disadvantages and are underserved but need different things. And so I think that that helps to push me um, as far as like thinking about planning solutions that is not a one size fit all. Um, and I like challenges like that. I know some people don't, but I thrive in those types of situations. So when I decided, I was like, I'm moving to Chicago. Hopefully I get a job, <laughs> you know, and, and I did and decided to move across the country yet again. Wow. And, and so far that, that experience in Chicago has so, somewhat been diverse as well. It was like working with the city mm-hmm. and working in the private sector. Uh, can yep. you kind of talk about that a little bit, the, the transition, like working in the public sector and in the private sector in the planning spaces there? Yeah, so um, I've been in the public sector most of my career with a, about an eight, nine month stint in the private sector. I will say um, when, I, I, when I transitioned to the city of Chicago, it was completely different than the city of LA. Um, and I was coming in with a mindset of, I wanna do new and challenging things. Like I said, I thrive in those situations, but I felt that the administration, the Rahm administration um, and, you know, and their goals and policies just weren't aligned with my, with what I wanted for my career and my values. Um, and so this is around the time that Lori Lightfoot, who's our current mayor was running. Like literally I moved February, 2019. And I think that was the primaries. So this was very, very early on. Um, and I realized I just, it wasn't a, the right fit at that time. Um, and so I just, I got an offer. I was recruited to, uh, be the planning director for a private firm called Muse Community Design, uh, which is a great firm, a uh, small boutique firm, uh, woman-owned, very, very much aligned with my values, and I decided to leave. Now, that was, uh, now I was only with the city of Chicago at that point, maybe eight or nine months, right? So that was me kind of betting on myself, 
But what I encourage everybody to do in their planning career is to put their values first. If you have, if now I will say, I'm very privileged to one had the offer from this other firm without me having to look, you know, being able to make that move. Um, I understand that, that that has its own privileges, but I will say it helped me grow. And then I was, now I'm back at the city of Chicago as an assistant commissioner to Commissioner Cox, who used to be the planning director for the city of Detroit, and I could not be happier. And if I had not left, I would not have the job that I have now, where I have the ability to create the change and see the changes that I know I wouldn't have been able to make under that other administration. Um, and I also believe in the, in the policies uh, and initiatives that Mayor Lori Lightfoot is putting forth, and that really makes a difference. It, it definitely does. It definitely does. Leading with your values, um, you know, is, is something that's extremely important in this space because, you know, the, this, is, this is legacy, whether we want to say it like that or not, mm -hmm. of we've seen what happened when folks just kind of go along to get along in yep. these urban planning spaces. That's how mm -hmm. we ended up. We, that's how we ended up with with racist policies. That's how we've ended up with you know this 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 lack of policy solutions. And as you you kind of talked about earlier, is the performative side of this the, the yep. equity discussion that's happening right now. And so if we had folk, folks who could lead with their values and be and, and be intentional about the positions that we're taking. Um, we could be better off for it as, as, as a culture, as a people, mm -hmm. and, and the cities that we're serving will be better served by Absolutely. those folks who are complete, are, are closer to, you know, the, this, this idea of, of, of understanding and being about the culture, right? Yep. That's, that's yep. that part that's inherent in, in that work. And so I'm so, I'm so happy for you, uh, for you to be in a, in, in this role in, in the city of Chicago right now, um, because you're definitely bringing that to the table. And uh, yeah. so this is, we're excited for Yeah, you. I've never been one of those. I know people, you know, especially black folks, <laughs> you know, they're like, that government job, keep it. It's a good job, right? <laughs> Who hasn't heard that? You know, my family, oh, you got a good right. job. Oh, you, you got, got the city job. benefits. And so when I, even when I decided to walk away from the city of Los Angeles, I had a great thriving career in Los Angeles. Literally, I, I left just not because I wasn't unhappy, because I was unhappy or because I didn't have good career trajectory. It was literally me wanting to challenge myself and knowing that I could, again, bring something new to the table and help other people in other places. Um, and so, you know, sometimes you just have to, you just have to make those choices. And I don't believe I've seen so many government workers who are just seat warmers and I never want to be that person. I'll, I'll quit before I become that person. Amen. I'm same boat. We, we, there, there's no, there's no way there's too much, there, there's too much at stake for us to, to be selfish yes. enough to just take, take up space, um, in these, in, in these government jobs or even private sector jobs it, mm -hmm. is, is look. We got work to do, and if you're about yep. this work and you're about uh, equity in the way that, that that we are, you know that Nina and I are like, mm -hmm. you you need to 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 walk that walk. Don't just talk yep. about it. Don't be oh, oh exactly. yeah, we support tweeting and texting and and, and right. stuff on Instagram. It's cool. It's MP good. Promises, mm -hmm. but but you got to follow through outside of that. Um, so so you know in in, in your role currently in Chicago. Um, and we're going to get to we're going to transition into this housing discussion because I think that's really an important an important topic. Um, but in your role currently, do you what what are some of the things that you think are are priorities uh, that you like to see in Chicago and maybe even 
be implemented in, in other cities across the country? Yeah, well, I think one thing that I have become really passionate about and has kind of become my niche in my work is this kind of reflective interdepartmental um, kind of analysis of like, how is your planning department efficient? How is your planning department actually um, getting things done? How is your planning department quantifying its goals, mission, vision? Like, when I was for when I was working for the city of Los Angeles, uh, the director there, his name is Vince Bertoni, um, and, I, and the administration I was working on working under is uh, Mayor Eric Garcetti, which is still the administration now. Um, they created this performance management unit within the city of Los Angeles Planning Department. Now, the city of Los Angeles has the largest planning department in the nation. It has around 400 employees just for the planning department. This is a very very big department, but they were having issues with lawsuits community members, you know, you know, the typical things that you hear from any city, but at a city at that scale, it was really becoming a problem because California is a very litigious state. Um, you and because they have this thing called CEQA, which is for those who don't know, NEPA is like this national environmental regulation, um, but not every state has a um, has a state counterpart to that. But California has a very intense state counterpart called CEQA. And so through CEQA, you can sue over almost any project. Um, and so, again, when you think about government and bureaucracy, it, it holds up the process of change if, one, you're not representing the values of the community members to the point where they want to sue you. Um, and you're still seeing disparities like Los Angeles and California in general just has a horrible housing uh, shortage and affordability problem. Um, and so the, in the performance management unit, this was a new unit for this department. I was charged with creating the blueprint of how to train our employees, how to help track efficiencies. If we were lacking in something, getting our employees the resources that they needed in order for that to happen. Um, and just a, 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 bunch, a bunch of like internal working things that you don't really think about, but it, but it influences the end product, right? The goal is to have projects being built, have affordable housing being done, making sure that, you know, uh, public transit is running smoothly and, you know, that your environmental hazards are limited as much as they can be. If, you're, if your house is not in order, then none of that outside work can get done. Um, and so I think if cities invest more and strategies of how to make their planning departments more efficient internally than their work product products externally and what they're able to do in neighborhoods will increase expeditiously. So I was able to do that work in Los Angeles and then bring that skill set now to my current job uh, where I'm the assistant commissioner slash chief of staff to the commissioner. So I help to, to advise him on different things internally that we should be doing, working with the other bureau heads and managers, um, across the department on goals and um, employee training and working as a li liaison to the mayor's office and to the aldermen within the city of Chicago to make sure that their needs are being met as well and that the policy initi initiatives of the mayor office is being met. So it's, it's a very interesting niche of a job that I don't think a lot of people under realize that planners also can do. Absolutely, because we're, we're keenly aware of, of as, as planners and folks who are working in the built environment, it's, it's a, there's a facilitator role that we, we can play because we, 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 you know, when you're an urban planner, you're like, you're, you're steeped in, most of us, I won't say everybody, but a lot of us are, are, are steeped in, in how these systems operate 
and interact for the public benefit, right? For for the mm-hmm. for the residents' good, um, or or you know, or or negative impact, right? And so if I, I having a role like that in a city makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. It makes so much sense. So um, you know, in, in in this role, I'm sure you see like a lot of you you've had a lot of interactions um, on a on a number of issues. Um, but one that's so, super critical, not only in Chicago and, and you mentioned it in LA, um, but in Detroit as well, is is dealing with housing, um, dealing with you know the the lack of equity and the remnants of and you know I, it, it ain't it that far uh, distant past um, and it's happening in certain places. I was gonna say with redlining, um, you know, with with mortgage uh, bad mortgages and all of these different things that have impacted you know black and brown communities in these cities. Um, could you kind of talk about, you know, your experience along with that? And, and there was an interesting discussion that we had a little bit before this um, about home ownership in, in black and brown communities that I, I, I think, you know, we should we should dive into. Yeah, I mean, so I'm one of those people where my expertise is land use and zoning. Um, which I think surprises a lot of people because I don't think that the, one there's not a lot of black women in planning but then also when you get into the to, into like land use and zoning there's like two or three of us <laughs> right um and so that's kind of how I started out my career and then I transitioned into policy and I think that that helped me understand how the written policy affects what happens on the ground because a lot of times in departments those two things are so separate where there's one one team writing the policy and then there's another team implementing it. And because I got the experience of doing both, it gave me a unique perspective of like how the sausage gets made and how the intent of the writer doesn't always come across when it's being done on the ground, right? Um, You can look at any number of of examples um, when you think of like, for example, like an ADU ordinance, which is like um, uh, accessory dwelling unit, right? So people are like, this is going to help affordability. This is going to come into neighborhoods and create more housing stock. And yes, it, it does. But if you write it, but if you leave a bunch of loopholes in it, like for example, if you don't say, oh, you, it has to be owner occupied, like the, the primary address has to be owner occupied, then you leave room for developers to come in and just make two units on a lot. That that doesn't do anything for affordability. Um, if you don't put a requirement on um, like which lots, like depending on which neighborhoods, like we, like if you look at, at uh, South Chicago, there's plenty of vacant lots. They don't need, I mean, like accessory dwelling units aren't necessarily going to do much, right? On the east side of Detroit, where on my mom's street, there's three houses. That's not going to do anything. But if you're trying to actually integrate neighborhoods and you go into the north side of Chicago or the west side of Los Angeles, where it's white and wealthy and there's no income diversity, then that's where that policy really is going to make the difference. And so it's important for people to like bring those things with them, but because planning has been mostly white, right? And male, it leaves homogenous thought. So people think that they're doing something progressive, but really they've left a lot of loopholes with which doesn't actually meet the goals of what they were trying to do. And I was, and earlier, uh last week i was on this call with a bunch of different planners from all over the country and and some cities in canada and we were having this discussion about equity and housing policy how do we make sure that gentrification and displacement like how do we make sure that doesn't happen and how do we use policy to to eliminate or lessen that burden on neighborhoods right 
And so one of the planners who was very well-meaning, they were like, you know, we really need to think about home ownership in the black and brown communities because that will help to lessen the wealth gap. Now, if you know anything about history, you know, property, land, it, me it, it has created and exacerbated the wealth gap between black Americans and white Americans historically because this economy was built on the black of enslaved Africans, right? Uh, when we were emancipated, we were not given anything. We were supposed to be given 40 acres in a mule via an executive order, right? That came from Lincoln, but after his assassination, uh, his predecessor pulled that back, did not give us reparations. In fact, gave the slave owners uh, reparations for no longer having slaves. We got nothing. Um, and then when you look at modern history, and you look at the GI Bill, World War II, them being able to get mortgages out in the suburbs with cul-de-sacs and black people still not being able to own anything. We, we were segregated and redlined into these neighborhoods. Now we did own land, but every time we owned land, guess what? White folks, the Ku Klux Klan came in, either bombed it, uh, assassinated us and or just built freeways through it and called it, um, uh, urban renewal, right? <laughs> right? Just build freeways through whatever we were able to accomplish. So now that the land, the land that we own now, sure, my mom's a homeowner. She's been a homeowner for thirty years. Her home has accumulated about a five thousand dollar value in that thousand in that thirty years. Home ownership for some of us is not going to liberate us or actually give us what we what we think it's going to give us. Um, and so I just thought that was such an interesting, you know, coming from this white urban planner who's liberal and is well-meaning, but not really breaking it down, right, to what that actually looks like. You cannot separate land ownership from anti-Blackness. It's just, it's, it, short of reparations, because <laughs> I, I believe in reparations. Yeah, short yeah, reparations, I'm with you. Yeah. Land ownership is not going to liberate the black community. It's just, it's just not. Right, and 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 so from from my perspective, is is I, I agree, and I, I think that a lot of folks we forget that when we're talking about wealth building, home ownership is is typically a port of the portfolio for mm -hmm. for a lot of the white families and folks who have had access to, to loans and business loans and, and, and being able to get mortgages and, you know, save money and do all of these different types of things in a way that, you know, as you, as you uh, illustrated, black folks have not been able to do, um, you know, we've been, we've been held back from being able to do right. Uh, in a very meaningful way that, that cuts across the entire population. And so for, for me, um, home ownership can be important, but it's only one tool in the toolbox for building wealth because we, we also have to break down these systems that have been put in place, uh, you know, as well. And if, and if, you know, you're buying property in a neighborhood, like you just said, that's, you know, was, was worth $30,000 20 years ago, and now it's worth 35, uh, that, that's, that's not what, that's wealth building, but it ain't enough, right? It's like not, it's not it's enough, not, <laughs> it's not enough to be sustainable, right? And it's not going to pay for anybody's college. I can't pay my student loan. Like if my mom sold her house tomorrow, right? And was like, oh, I want to give my kids something. It's not going to pay off my student loans. It's not going to pay for a down payment for another house. Um, it's, it's not going to give those things as it does for white folks who have established wealth, right? Because I have white counterparts who don't have student loans. Guess what? Because their parents took out a second mortgage 
on their $500,000 house, right? And and even now, I'm a homeowner, so I also don't want to make it seem as though I'm saying don't go buy a home, but buying a home that appreciates in value is a privilege. I am privileged. I was able to buy a house that even in the year and a half that I've had it has appreciated $20,000. My mother, my aunts, my uncles did not have the same privilege, right? I'm the exception to the rule, not the rule. And so I really want planners to think through, it's, it's one thing to be an ally and to think and to say these things in meetings and be well-meaning, but you have to ascend to what I call, like to what people call an accomplice, right? Where it's like, you're really putting your resources, your privilege on the line to further these things, right? To, and so when, when we get into these meetings and we're literally writing, you, you know, me and you both work in government, we're literally writing ordinances and policies that affect millions of people's lives. It can't just stop at, oh, you know, black ownership, that'd be cool. Maybe we should, you know, throw some dollars behind Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's there's there's the other components of this, too, that folks typically don't don't consider is is you, you once you buy that property, um, you know, you purchase home, you get the mortgage or, or however you go about doing it. You got to pay taxes. You, you know, you got your you got your your, your, your summer yeah. and your winter taxes. That's that's yeah. an expense. You have upkeep on your major systems, whether it's windows, roof, uh, your porch, like water heater, all of these different types of things that come along. And those are bills. Right. Yep. And so for folks who who may be struggling, sometimes the best option for them in that space is to make sure that we as planners have provided enough affordable housing to to accommodate where people are in that station in their life. We can't just assume that every person needs to be a homeowner immediately. That's going to solve right. everything. It does not. It's not. It is. It is a part of a thriving system that we as planners and housing advocates we have to be more vocal about that home ownership is not the silver bullet. It's right. a tool in a toolbox. And right. we need to make sure that as a community, we're advocating for and demanding additional affordable units and mm-hmm. then market rate units that are affordable for folks yep. who are transitioning, like, like, you know, folks coming out of college and undergrad, like, look, I came out of undergrad, I had debt. And I was like, I'm gonna buy a house. I want to do this. And as I started looking at it, it was like I had the right idea, but I wasn't mm-hmm. in the right place in my life at that time where where owning a home fit my budget and fit my future goals. Life and your lifestyle too. I mean, because Absolutely. not all of us, you know, it hasn't been until recently that when I decided to buy a house, one because I couldn't afford one in Los in Los Angeles. I was also displaced from where I live, but that's a whole other story. Um and so when I got to Chicago, it's like, okay, I'm finally at a place in, in, in my life in which I can buy a home and, and live comfortably. But that's not the reality for most people. And I also think it takes away from my personal belief that ro- housing is a human right. <laughs> I just, let's, I'm just gonna put that out there, right? Yeah, uh, 100. <laughs> so that, so even focusing on the fact that somebody has to buy a home in order to have a safe, healthy place to live, to me is innately wrong right so to force on people that home ownership is the answer to their liberation when again housing should be a human right that also doesn't sit well with me and and just just to be clear we ain't knocking you hustlers out there that's that's out here trying to flip houses and do your thing that's not what we're talking about what (laughs) we're talking about 
is 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 for the culture, right? Like for the culture, yeah. we need to understand that that there are stages of housing, right? Mm-hmm. There are there, there are stages of housing, and we have shortages at the affordable level. We have shortages yeah. at the senior level, right? Mm-hmm. Where your your grandmother and grandfather, your great grandmother and great grandfather are living in big homes that they for or living in homes that they can't keep up and maintain because right. of their age, um, because of a lack of resources from from municipalities and organizations to assist them in staying in these homes or transitioning into something that is more suited for, you know, their, their experience in life at that moment. And so for me, it's, it's housing across the board that we need to continue to advocate for and the home ownership, we're not going to stop talking about it, but yeah. we need to put it in its proper, proper context. And so, right. yeah. <laughs> Now, if you can go out there and get four or five properties in a neighborhood that's going to appreciate value, do your thing. Do right. your thing. Yeah. I, I, shoot, I'm, 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 I'm holding on to one as it is. I mean, <laughs> I'm not trying right. to be nobody landlord. You know, you got to have that <laughs> entrepreneurial spirit because I can barely, I'd be like, I got to shovel my own snow. What is going on? <laughs> but yeah, it's just like the, <laughs> the context of the profession, right? It's not, it's not about individuals. It's about the um, just planning as a profession has contributed to and perpetuated anti-blackness and white supremacy in this world. The built environment is so closely tied to those things. You literally cannot rip them apart. And it's up to planners to play an active role in undoing that harm and doing as least the least amount of harm as we create new policies. I really believe that because if you're going to call yourself my colleague, I have a very high standard of what you're supposed to be doing. Um, I recently was elected as APA Illinois president. I'm the first pres- black president, black president, period. Regardless of to you, sis. <laughs> Thank you. And, you know, it's funny because some people will say, oh, Nina, you're so, you're so combative. You're so negative. You're always talking about how APA is, you know, anti-Black and, and you know, it's um, kind of pressing these kind of harmful policies. And I'm, and I'm like, well, do you know history? Like, this is, this is, this is a fact. Um, but I know that's a lot of gaslighting and dog whistling. Um, but at the same time, I recognize that what I say because it's coming from me as a black woman in this industry, people are always going to dismiss it or, or because it's always about protecting whiteness. That's that defensiveness. Whenever you critique the planning profession and what it has done, which is document well documented, if you're protecting that or defending that is because you want to uphold the system that benefits you right? Or you want to uphold the system of whiteness that is urban planning. And I am trying to actively change it because I love what I do. I love calling myself a planner. And like I said, I have a very high standard for myself. Therefore, I put that high standard on other planners. That's why when I meet, when I met you, or I meet other specifically planners of color who are passionate and ready to get to work, and have the same value set as me, I'm like, let's do it. Let's do this work. Because I have met so many who, again, are sea warmers or performative. And they don't actually want to get the work done. They just want to say that they that they look like they got the work done. You know, and like, even with me only being in Illinois a short amount of time, you know, there were, there were issues with our board for the, you know, the state of Illinois being very homogenous, right? 
And in the last year, like, mind you, I was only on the board for the 2020 calendar year. Me and my colleague, Kalindi, we were able to get six women of color to run and get five seats on this board within a year. Which tells me that although you all were saying you wanted to do these things, it, a little bit of it was performative because there's no way or no reason that two women can come into this organization brand spanking new and flip that many seats, right? And that's, that's what I'm trying to instill and change. Also, the American Planning Association, and I know that you are involved in or have been involved in the, in the chapter of Michigan, to me, it's not some social club in which we meet once a year for a conference. That's not, that's, that's not why, why I pay my dues and why I decided to get AIQP. I came to make a change. And so again, when I hear other people say, oh, you know, we didn't get to have our conference this year, boo-hoo. I'm like, oh no, there's still policies and opinion letters and you know things that we could be doing outside of your little conference where you get to make a speech. <laughs> it's, it's not about that. It's about actually changing our planning organization, our accreditation, and our in our planning profession. Absolutely. And 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 using using the space that that we're in to advocate for those who are not in the room. Like that's right. that's one of that's one of the you know my biggest pet peeves is you know I've 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 you know yeah I've been involved with the APA. I I, I did the uh, I signed up to do the APA ambassador thing and it was all voluntary and we didn't you know it was like lack of resources and all these things and I'm and I'm the type of person where it's like look I can I, if I'm going to go out and I'm going to go hard for an organization, or I'm going to be a part of something, support me in doing that. Um, you know, support me in doing that because I'm not, I'm doing this because it's, it means something to me, but you're just the medium right now that I'm using to better my community, right? Like I'm working with and partnering with to better my community. Now there are some folks, um, you know, and people of color who, who get into certain roles and they're not keeping that door open, right? Or we're not advocating for those uh, who are who are outside of the room because we're happy to be there. Yeah, yeah. The time the time to be happy to be there been over. Like exactly. If, you, if you're not if you're not in the room to 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 advocate for the folks that um, that you're supposed to be representing, and you know that you represent that culture, or you represent these things. Some people just don't have a stomach for it, and some right. people might not have a had the ability to to understand that conflict you know, it doesn't always have to be nasty and negative and all those things, but conflict causes change. You exactly. have to raise the issue. You have yeah. to challenge what's going on. You right. have to say, hey, whoa, why are you doing it this way? Why haven't you considered right. this person or consider this? And, and so I appreciate the fact that, that that's something that you've done throughout your career. And, and again, I want to just make sure I know I said it uh, and I want to make sure that the folks here is like, I, I salute you in the work oh, that you've you. done and, and, and becoming um, you know, the president board out there with APA Illinois and, and bringing additional folks into the space. And, and not only this, but to to really advocate for women of color. Mm. I think in this in this point. field in particular, you know, with it with it being, you know, so patriarchal, um, even with with black men as planners, we're not you know, I, I folks aren't coming to the defense of or to the to the support of black and brown women in these spaces mm, speak and on it's, it. And it's, it it's, it's irritating to me mm. that 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 still can take place in in the year of our lord 2021 right it does not make sense <laughs> it, is, it does not make sense to me at no. all and so so when i'm sitting back and i'm seeing you making moves and i'm like 
okay, how can I support you? What can I do? Who can I, I call? That. Who can I, and that who can I share world. these messages with? Yeah. And that, that's how it should be. And so, that you is. know, I, I just want to, again, just want to just say, I congratulate you on what you did, but you, you know, for the folks out there, she worked for that. She earned mm-hmm. that. She put in the, the sweat mm-hmm. equity and built the relationships and partnerships to make that happen. Can you speak to like, you know, like, like why, you, I mean, you've kind of touched on it a little bit, um, but the importance of, of allyship in, in this field of planning with, with other planners of color um, in, in particular in helping to push movements and helping to push yeah. uh, change in systems. It's, the way I see it is that as a planner, ethically, our responsibility is to make opportunities through the built environment for those who have less privilege than us, right? And so as a Black woman, there are, there are people that I have more privilege of, right? When you talk about ability, the fact that I identify as heterosexual, the, the uh, fact that I identify with the gender that, that I was assigned at birth, right? Um, these are all things that are privileges to me and I'm hyper aware of. And so therefore, when I'm walking into rooms, I'm always advocating for those folks who I know would not or cannot be in that room. And I wish and I hope that my white colleagues, right, or those who have or my male colleagues who have more privilege than me do the same for me, right? And if we all had that mentality, then we then we would be truly doing our duty as planners in the built environment and creating more opportunities for for everyone to thrive with emphasis on those who have been um, casted aside or disinvested for for multiple reasons. Um, And so it's not to say, again, you know, and and this is another thing, you know, it's not to say that Illinois is, um, is unique in its issues. It's not, right? It's not to say Chicago is unique in its issues. It's not. When I was in the APA chapter in California, which is this hippy-dippy liberal state, we had the same issues. I was going through the same battles, having the same headaches, having the same dog whistling and gaslighting saying, Nina, you're so negative. You're always trying to get us to do X, Y, and Z, and it's never enough. Same thing, right? And even those who are allies or white allies feel disempowered because, again, those who are protecting whiteness and protecting kind of like that good old boys club will always silence those who don't agree, right? And so me being in the room, even for my white allies, uh, helps them feel empowered, right? To use their privilege to say, actually, I agree with Nina. And I ha- and I've had those thoughts, but I just didn't get, you know, I just didn't feel like anybody would hear me or I said it and, and everybody ignored me. There have been people, you know, that I've interacted who have said that, right? There have also been black and brown folks who wanted to be participate in APA, right? On the national level, at the state level. But they're like, I don't see myself in that. Like Nina, good for you. I, I see that you're, you know, play, paying your dues and, you know, going to conferences, but that's not for me, right? And so when we deliberately went out, when I tell you we had meetings, we had meetings, we recruited people, we were texting people, we like, come, let's talk about what we can do. If you're interested in running, we could, let's, let's, let's have a plan. We met, we created this late document, we recruited people to vote for us. It was a whole thing, right? And like you said, people see the other side of it where it's like, oh my God, they got the most, literally this is the most diverse board in its history of this board to have five women of color on it and its first black president. But that took a lot of work behind the scenes over a year to make happen. Um, and so I, what I want allies to understand is that POC 
are often burdened with making these changes. But if you just feel a little bit more empowered, drum up a little bit more courage, <laughs> you can make it happen. And then I also have to deal with the reality that I'm a Black woman and in a lot of these spaces, I'm just disposable, right? And, and not, I don't literally feel disposable, but because I'm a Black woman, retaliation is a very real thing. So me being outspoken, me telling my truth and not backing down could be hurtful to me in some way. Um, but, you know, God is great. <laughs> he always got my back. And so I always feel, you know, especially now in my career, I feel a lot more empowered to speak my mind than I did when I was younger in my career, of course, because I have a little bit more clout. I'm, you know, in a higher position. I, I can say things, People, you know, I'm an advisor, you know, so people listen to me. But you putting yourself on the line as a white ally it will probably be a lot, less, a lot less harmful to you and your livelihood than your POC counterparts. So also think about that. The next time somebody says something racist or, uh, or, or insensitive and you say silence, right? Um, just think about that other person and what they're going through and how they could lose their job just for saying something. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, th I think the, the, the part that I, I just want to, you know, uh, uh, mentioned as well is that you, you talked about being in a different position in your career right now to be able to advocate, but you can advocate from wherever you are. Now, the thing that I want to just, I want to make planners aware of is, is oftentimes your situation is unique, right? I mean, because you, you I don't know what's happening in, you know, Richmond, Virginia, as, as well as somebody who's in that city. I don't know what's happening in you know, Pittsburgh and all these other places other than what I hear. But if you're in those, if you're a planner who's working in that particular city, you know, then, then it's, it's, it's up to you to decide how do you take that approach? What tact do you take? Who are, how are you building partnerships and relationships with the community? Because these are things that the neighborhoods are, are looking for. They want to see themselves represented in these organizations. They want to see themselves represented at the municipal level and, and, and in any space that exists in America, we deserve to be, period. And, and you know, so that self-selection sometimes, this is the flip side of this, the self-selection sometimes folks are like, no, nah, I, I don't wanna get involved with that. That's, that's what those folks over there, that's what those folks are doing. But when we make sure that we're utilizing our voices in all of these spaces, we can make, that's when real change happens. And, and don't be afraid of conflict. Conflict don't mean like, look, I'm gonna see you in the parking lot like <laughs> after, the, after work today. No, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> But, but what yeah. I'm talking about is advocating in meetings and challenging the norm and challenging, mm -hmm. you know, the policies and the systems that are in place. And, it, and, and to see what's happening in Illinois uh, with the APA out there. Look, I, I, I'll share this story really quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I might lose some, lose some, uh, some friends or whatever on this one. But you know, <laughs> essentially, essentially here, you know, in Michigan, we do have the Michigan Association of Planning. And, mm -hmm. you know, I had approached them uh, some time ago. Um, you know, was getting invited to different meetings and I'm participating in all this stuff and I'm looking around the room and, and I'm typically, I was typically the only black person in the room. And, mm -hmm. and so I started like asking questions and this is before I actually went back to graduate school. So um, I was working uh, and got involved with them. And I, I, I asked, I was like, so, you know, like, I, there's black planners and stuff out there, right? Like, where's everybody at? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's not that many. We don't have a relationship mm -hmm. with folks. And then it came like, 
well, you know, we're going to try to do better with the city of Detroit because there's a black planters out there. And I'm like, in a state like Michigan, Detroit and Tramac, Pontiac, Saginaw, Flint, Benton Flint. Harbor, yeah. like all of these places, Flint, Saginaw, like all of this, we're, we're everywhere, right? Black folks okay. are everywhere. And, and there are folks who are in this profession. And that was something that was commonly mentioned is that there just weren't black planners or there weren't enough black planners that, that could be engaged or interested in the process. It's a myth. So I took that, I took that, as, it, it is absolutely a myth. I took that as a challenge and decided like, look, I'm gonna make a difference somehow, some way. Like, like I'm gonna start finding these planners and start reaching out to people because mm-hmm. they definitely are. And as I, I grew into the field, I went back to graduate school and became a planner. During my time there, I, I met so many black planners from across the country. I met so many mm-hmm. Latino uh, planners from that, that I've mm-hmm. met and Asian planners, like all of these planners of color that I've met. And it was like, what are you talking about? They're in state. They, right. they, oh, this person has been with right. this city for 14, right. 15 years. Like they should right. be involved in this process. And, um, and so I, I definitely think that that's, this is not, it wasn't unique to Illinois. It wasn't unique to California. Mm-hmm. It's happening everywhere. And yeah. in all of these spaces, what it requires is, is somebody to challenge and, yeah. and have some of that conflict uh, to, to make that change that's necessary. And we can have results like what took place in Illinois. I'm, I'm just so proud of you. I, you know, like, look, I'm just so Thank proud of, of what, what that represented and what Ooh, it meant I can't wait to pass on the baton, though. I'm not going to let you. I, I'm ready. I'm waiting for the next Nina to come up. <laughs> When you trailblazing, look, when you trailblazing, you know how it is. Like you look, you trailblazing, you out there out front and you're taking the, the hits and, and doing all the things that's necessary to lay the groundwork, but you did it. And I hope that that as you proceed in your career and other folks come behind you, that they continue to honor that, the, the work and, and the sweat equity that you put in. I am very optimistic, I will say, um, with the state of planning today versus when I was in grad school. And you, uh, you graduated from grad school in 2018. So, uh, right. Is that correct? 17, 2017. Um, so 17. So yeah. even for me back in 2012, 2013, like I said, nobody was saying DEI at all. Like nobody was really, I mean, like people were saying it, but it wasn't like the thing. It was a few of us, you know, like that I would listen to on a daily basis. But now I feel like the field has really grown. And I feel like it's specifically in 2020, it has come to a head. And a lot of us that have been doing this work are finally, 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 not even, I don't want to use the word acknowledge because it's not about acknowledging us, but acknowledging our voices, right? Acknowledging that we have been saying this and we have been coming to the table with possible solutions, but you have just ignored us. Like you said, there's plenty of POC planners but a lot, one, because POC uh, planners don't see themselves as planners, right? They're usually in like ancillary positions where they're working at a, uh, a develop, economic development corporation or affordable housing. So they don't use the word planner because again, that even calling yourself a planner is steeped in whiteness and white supremacy because of how the structure of our profession is, right? And that is, again, I'm, that's not me being negative. That is just a fact. So it's hard for even to get my POC friends who I know are doing this work to say, I want to be a part of APA. I want to be uh, AICP, right? And so we need to shift that conversation so that POC planners, again, who are doing the work feel included in the profession. Therefore, we can get their ideas and, and and the policies that they've already written, right? They've already been in these communities. You know, they got a saying, don't make friends when you need them, right? 
you can't you can't go out into the community every time you just need something from them and never have a connection to them outside of that literal project right that you need feedback on that's not how sustainable planning works and so there are people in these communities who are constantly tied to them but again because they don't see themselves as planners they they are left out of the conversation and so to me if we become a more inclusive profession by by uh, just just by change, shifting that narrative, we'll immediately come up with better policies and better initiatives and write better ordinances because those voices will be included, you know? And so I'm optimistic now that, that those changes are coming and are not even just coming, but they're happening. I get, I get so inspired by your voice, uh, Gigi the planner. There's so, I mean, there's literally everybody you've interviewed, you know, like there's so many voices in the planning field that have come up in, since I left grad school and I could not be more thankful for them. And they help inspire me to keep going and keep doing the work that, you know, that I, I've been passionate about and say like, okay, if she can do it, I can, I can give it a few more years, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> so I am optimistic in that sense. You know, I am optimistic. And APA National is doing a lot to change the narrative on, on the national level. And then, you know, slowly the chapters are coming along. So I am also thankful for that. Yeah, they, they definitely have been, you know, put pulling equity to the forefront, um, and equity and inclusion to the forefront of, of what APA has been doing, and especially the last year, um, especially due to the uprisings and things that we saw across across the nation uh, due to police brutality and, and, and police murders of, of, of residents and black folks in, in communities. I, I definitely have seen that increase in calling things out and mm -hmm. also, you know, moving out of the way uh, and, and creating space uh, or removing themselves from spaces in order for other voices to be Absolutely. present. Absolutely. And I think that's Absolutely. a really, really key key thing to move forward is, you know, as 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 we grow in in our work, is that to, to continue to be conscious of the space that we occupy and the space that, you know, we could be creating um, or making room for for others who, who have various ideas. Like, I, I'm not right on everything. I know right. that, right? I don't. <laughs> I don't know. Me. Yeah, challenge, <laughs> challenge me. And and if yeah. and if you're doing planning right, you know, I I had this conversation with with someone the other day about what an expert is, and and I'm like, look, a lot of folks throw expert around like all, all the time, but they they think it 